It's always an honor to be with God's people. Uh, the longer I live, the more I appreciate the body of Christ and the people God puts in my life. And he has graciously put you all into my life, and I'm very grateful. Over the past few years, uh, a lot of the group leaders and team leaders in our church have been working together to get a closer definition of what we call our DNA. What is it that you get when you squeeze or cut us? And I hope that it's what God wants to be there. But we've been working on it. And I assure you, we're not yet, any of us, all that we want to be. But we believe these factors that we'll call DNA are God's will for us. <clears throat> now, there's a mechanical consideration here. A good group of us have been working on this. But I, I today, am going to give you my definition, and that's unfair to everybody else in the group. I just count on, I'm going to throw the basket at you, and I'm going to count on the pastor to straighten it all out <laughs> later on. Okay. <laughs> so these factors are not just theories and aspirations. We have personally experienced every one of these factors that I'm going to talk about <clears throat> in our years of trying to follow God as individuals and as churches. We're attempting to speak out of the fullness of our own hearts. I pray that my heart will be full of these anytime I give some of my heart to you. It is our attempt to follow scripture, <clears throat> and that's always a primary consideration for me, but it's also a part of our formative experience, walking with God, trying to trust him, Sticking with him beyond what's comfortable is what makes us who we are. Now, when God looks at us at the beginning, there's always a long way to go. But he's the author of faith, remember, so it's on him. I have tried every way I know to make this something other than a classroom lecture. But I have failed, so I just want you to hang on. Because the majority of what, we're, what I'm going to try to say today is scripture. Scripture quotation. Poor Priscilla's trying to keep up with, I don't know, 15 or 20 scripture passages. And I just pray that you'll be merciful to me and to her. But when we try to define the cardinal points of who we are based on scripture first always, but also based on our experience with God over the years, that becomes who we are. Hopefully, and, and we know for sure it is attempting to shape us in his image, to get more of him in us and less of us in whatever we say or live before other people. So here we go. The first point is the kingdom, God's kingdom. God's kingdom was Jesus' main message in the Gospels. If you don't believe it, just read Matthew and count how many times he talks about the kingdom. The kingdom is heaven's government or rule in effect on the earth and in our lives. I look on it as our foundation in this world from beyond this world. Jesus said in Matthew 10... Uh, Matthew 6:10, to pray this way, 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's just so plain, it's hard to mess up. And we believe, we do believe, that he intends to conform this world to himself and not the other way around. As you know, human nature is in the opposite direction. But he is Lord, and we are not. In Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11, Paul says, Christ Jesus, being found in appearance as a human, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because he did that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every other name. So much so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. We believe this and we have experienced it. The second point <clears throat> is what we call covenant relationships. <clears throat> this means relationships that are not based on convenience or compatibility or common interests or whatever is to our benefit. God himself is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. <clears throat> as, as Jeremiah 31 says, revealing the very nature of God, I have loved you, God says, with an everlasting love. Now that's one way to express covenant right there. It's an agreement and a bond and a relationship that is absolutely steadfast and durable because it's based on God's own nature and God's power and God's will. With God, <clears throat> saying covenant relationship, as I said to the group one time, is sort of like saying tooth dentist. Covenant relationships are the only relationships that God really deals in. Covenant begins with him joining us to himself, then joining us to each other, then bringing others into that covenant community with the Father. 1 John 1, 1 through 3 lays it out. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Do you see the place of experience as well as Scripture in all of this? Experience never determines Scripture, but Scripture should always determine our experience. So I'm going to start again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, seen with our own eyes, looked at, touched, this is what we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it. We testify. We proclaim concerning the word of life. That life was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, not just heard about. So that you may have the same relationship and fellowship and intimacy and connection with the Father that we have. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
And there's a very interesting translation in the latter part of this verse. Uh, I remember some of the translations say, we write this to make your joy complete. But it actually says, we write this to make our joy complete. God, in the new birth, has put something in us that ought to make us unhappy unless we can see other people having the same joy, the same hope, the same confidence, the same relationship with the Father. This relationship <clears throat> is never just intellectual or official. It's always personal because God is personal. He's not a thing. He's a person. He never said, I, I, it is. He, what he said was, I am. And that's what we're dealing with. The entire Old Testament is a story of the Father's heart. He could be impatient, threatening, warning, but he was always at root, compassionate, caring, connected, merciful, sacrificially loving us. To bring us into fellowship with him. The psalmist in 139 verses 13 through 16 shows some of the dazzling detail of his creation of us. He says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully, awesomely, and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame, listen carefully, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, before one of them came to be. That's personal relationship with God. We believe this, and we have experienced it. Point three is life in the Spirit. We have some good news. We are called into and qualified for a supernatural life. We who belong to Jesus, and I mean this, we who belong to Jesus have an extra level of direction, protection, power, revelation, understanding, and encouragement that the rest of this world does not have. Is that okay with you? We do. We do. God has given us his spirit to live in us. We are not limited to the natural. We are not limited to the natural. All the power and authority demonstrated in the Gospels and the book of Acts and the other New Testament are still valid, of course, even as our grasp of these possibilities is not as strong as we would like it to be. It's there. It's promised. It's been validated. Luke 11, 9 says that we are to ask, seek, knock. It doesn't say about deserving or earning or anything else. Ask, receive, knock. And the following verses go on to say, If earthly fathers know how to give good gifts 
How much more, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask them? We are designed to have him living in us and leading us and instructing us and teaching us and protecting us. In John 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The prophet Joel uh, gave a word about this hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. He said in Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, Afterward, in the days to come, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Now that word all is important because in the Old Testament, as far as our understanding, the Spirit was poured out primarily on prophets and kings, special cases like that. But this clearly says, I am going to pour out that Spirit on all my people. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Even servants, men and women, I will pour out my spirit on, in those days. And I'll show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood, fire, smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And here's the purpose in this passage that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise. That's a promise. This is confirmed in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. This is after the resurrection and before the ascension. While Jesus was eating with his disciples, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem yet. Wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Because John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, as is common with God's people, we're on the periphery. <laughs> but they asked him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel and he said to them, It is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And because of that, you will be my witnesses in, all, in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And of course, as you know now, it happened dramatically just a few days later on Pentecost Day. We believe this, and we have experienced it. Point four is discipleship. A disciple in the Bible is a learner, or a pupil, or a servant, or an apprentice. It's not just an occasional casual brush with knowing God better. It's a willingness to get into a relationship to be shaped and trained to become a lifelong learner, 
consistently following God's word, knowing his ways. Oh, Lord, help us. Knowing his ways. Phyllis and I were talking at, at, on the way to church this morning, and uh, we were remembering that his ways are as high above our ways as the, as the heavens are above the earth, as different from his as the east from the west. So don't ever be ashamed when you feel like God needs to work on you a little bit. Consider where you started, okay? It involves opening yourself to instruction, to admonition, to change, and to accountability. Accountability is always a part of the kingdom of God. To whom and in what ways are we accountable? There's always a point of reference beyond ourselves in God's kingdom. That point, of course, is Jesus. Jesus has called us to be his disciples, as he called the twelve. In John chapter 1, verse 43, he said to Philip, an ordinary human being, follow me. That's the basis of discipleship right there. Following something beyond ourselves and being open. In John chapter 10, verse 4, he said, When the watchman is brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. In our Wednesday night group, we're dealing with uh, how God speaks. And we're learning that he speaks in a lot of different ways, but that we have to learn to hear his voice before we get all the message. So we're discipling ourselves, hopefully. Okay. He says in uh, John chapter 10, verses 27, 28, where was I? Yeah. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I'm the one that gives them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Embracing discipleship takes an attitude, a certain frame of mind, and it's talked about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of the mercy of God, to offer yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to whom? To God. to God. This is your spiritual worship. So, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the way you think and understand and perceive. You can check on my interpretation. That's okay. Then... You will be able to test and approve what God's will is. What's the last question you usually ask yourself in a deliberation? What is God's will? But you will be able to find out and approve and agree with God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We believe this, and we have experienced it. Point five is what we call generational ministry. That, of course, means the next generation. 
In all these times, and they've been that way throughout history, in times of ungodly, confused, self-centered, foundationless culture, God's people and godly parents are called and should be equipped to live and teach a culture centered on God's sovereignty, God's truth, God's care and love, and God's guidelines for living. Children and young people are more open to be formed and trained and influenced than in any later time in their lives. And that's why God said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Be careful so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen. And for them, that was a pilgrimage of miraculous intervention by God in dozens of ways. They saw it. They experienced. They ate the manna. They saw the fire on the mountain. They saw the sea part. He said, do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart. Not just in memory, that's not always reliable, but from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Okay, grandparents? Okay. And in Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 through 21, he says again, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and around your foreheads. And if you think that doesn't make a difference, look at the Jews as a cohesive people centuries, millennia after these words were said, and they are still a cohesive people. Tie them as symbols on your hands and foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home or when you walk along the road or when you lie down or when you get up or most any time. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. As many as the days that are, there are when the heavens are above the earth. That's a long time. And let me add something here. Not just your own children. I, I, I marvel to look at the parenting going on in our congregation. I thank God for you young parents every week because it's a miracle. It's God's will, but it's a miracle. And it has its effect. But I think about this too. Others, the children of others in Scouts, Steve, the children of others, high schoolers, Bill and Nancy, they made a career of that. The middle schoolers and high schoolers of others, Velocity Team. The general youth of others, Love Your City Team. Others, kids who have no real possibilities or hope, Boy the Ball Teams, everywhere. The students of other parents, teachers, and so many others. They're all ours, and we all have opportunity and responsibility. 
And here again, a key element in the Deuteronomy 4 passage you read is that what you're passing on is not just facts, principles, history, theory. It's what your eyes have seen, your ears have heard, what you have experienced in the Lord. That's the DNA. We believe this and we have experienced it. Point number six is spiritual authority. Our conviction from scripture is that God alone is the chief authority in all things. After all, he's a creator. He is Lord of all, and as we have learned, we are not. But the degree to which we submit ourselves to God's authority, we become authorized to exercise that authority on his behalf. There's a story in Matthew 8 where Jesus encountered a Roman centurion who had come to ask for healing for his servant. When Jesus offered to go to his home, the centurion, who was a high-ranking man in his town, said, uh, you don't have to go. And Jesus was not insulted. You don't have to go. You say the word here, and he can be healed there. That's spiritual authority. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at the faith and understanding of authority that this man demonstrated. He saw something of the kingdom that a lot of the others did not see. And the servant was healed. In Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus said, All authority on heaven in heaven and on earth is given to me. In the strength of that fact, go and make disciples of all nations. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's spiritual authority. How did Jesus, one man, deal with crowds deal with evil spirits, deal with an entire religious hierarchy against him, he had been given authority and power. And he knew that that would operate in his followers. Do you hear that? He believed that it would operate through his followers who were submitted to him. 2 Corinthians 10 gives us an important clue about spiritual warfare. Verses 3 through 5 tell us, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of this world. Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension. And by the way, every argument against God is a pretension. It doesn't hold water. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And every time you see the knowledge in this context, you could say in relationship with God. To know him is to be related to him. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's a push. <laughs> and Ephesians 6 reminds us 
Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The other people that you see and hear and who may rant or rave or whisper or deceive, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I personally, an ordinary human being, and I've lived long enough for this to be true, I have seen and confronted people who were hurt, broken, raging, threatening, suicidal, deranged, a danger to themselves and to others. And in most every case, I've felt a little bit of danger in my own heart <laughs> because of the situation. But, and I wrote this originally to say in most cases, but I am unable to remember one of these dramatic cases where it was not true. They were calmed, quieted, healed, delivered, remade by the name of Jesus. And sometimes that's the only words I knew to say in those situations. The name and authority and lordship of Jesus. And Philippians 2, as we've already read, says, that is the name above every other name. That's not logical. That's something you get by believing, choosing to trust. So I believe this, and we believe this, and we have experienced it. The seventh point, be patient, friends, we're coming to the end. The seventh point is the mission of God. This is a point that always gets us beyond self. Having been reclaimed and born again and protected and blessed by his redemptive power, what is there beyond that? Well, God always has something beyond that. He is ascending God. The Father sent the Son. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit. And the Spirit sends the church into the world with the good news of the kingdom of God. And for anybody who needs help, the kingdom is good news. The Old Testament is sprinkled everywhere with this statement by the Father, said practically the same way in every case. You are my chosen people, my special or cherished possession. And we of the Christian area, we sense the same thing. We feel like God chose us and has allowed us into his kingdom. But we often ignore the question, chosen for what? As he told Israel, it wasn't because you were more glamorous or more numerical or uh, larger numbers or any of those things. It was because of me and my choice. So don't get puffed up. Isaiah begins to give specific answers to this why in uh, chapter 42, verses 5 through 7. This is what the Lord says, and not just any Lord, but the one who created the heavens and stretched them out and, and spread forth the earth 
and everything that comes out of it, the one who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on this earth. He says, I, the Lord, have called you in or into righteousness. I will take hold of your hand on this mission that I have for you. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant, a demonstration of covenant. For the people and a light for whom? That's right. All nations. All nations. To open eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison. To release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And in Isaiah 49, we see spotlighted verses 5 through 7, the fact that God sees all nations and every person in the scope of his care and redemption. Now the Lord says, again, he specifies very clearly which Lord he's talking about. The one who formed me in his womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob and Israel to himself. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. This is what he says. It is entirely too small a thing for you to restore just the tribes of Jacob and Israel. I will also make you, and I'm a Gentile, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, for all nations. And that's why I'm here today, thank God. So that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth, 1 Peter 2.9 makes it very clear. You, plural, you all, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. A priest is an intermediary between people and God in the Old Testament. A holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of of the one who called you. Experience again, see? The one who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The fact is, God never stops saying, go. To the next person, to the people next door, to the next nation, to the next opportunity anywhere in town. Because there is no end or limit to his care or redemption. I have experienced this, and I believe it. Thank you, Chris. Wow, that was a drop the mic moment right there. Um, thank you, Brother Curtis. Uh, what a blessing to have Curtis and Phyllis in our community. Um, Curtis is a wise sage. I didn't say old, I said a wise sage. And he is a great friend and advocate and mentor to me personally and to our church. So we are grateful to you for so succinctly giving us such great uh, revelation around those things that we feel are 
building blocks for our church community. I'm grateful for Pete sharing last Sunday, did a tremendous job last week in sharing, and, and uh, I was just really blessed by his ministry. I got to watch the live stream. You know, how do you conclude a, a gathering like this this morning? It's been rich and full. Uh, I'd like to pray for us because those seven elements, those seven pieces that we have grappled with and tried to succinctly um, come to some description for it and to be able to translate that and communicate that. Uh, it's about what God has done in us, and Curtis so well, he, he did it so well. It comes from scripture, but also our experience with him. And so I'd like to pray for us as a church. And then we're going to sing a song, and if there's anybody in need of ministry or prayer this morning, we want to give opportunity for that as well. So the worship team, if you'd go ahead and come up, and um, we'll sing in just a moment. Would you pray with me? Lord, our hearts are, are filled with your goodness today and the love that you have shed towards us. Um, the realities of what Brother Curtis has shared with us is, is something that for those of us who've experienced you, we know the fullness of it. Uh, and yet there is always more fullness yet to come. And Lord, for those that are in our midst, those that have been coming around or been drawn more recently, that may have not as fully experienced who you are, what your kingdom means, what covenant means, and yet you're drawing them, I pray that these words would be encouragement and strength to them and that your spirit would use them to grow and develop and to disciple. Now, Lord, I pray for us as a church community here in Lawrenceville, Georgia, where you've placed us in this city, in this county, in this area of need. Lord, we want to be your people, useful in your hand, able to not only love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another, but also to love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to be able to be your witnesses as you challenged and charged your early disciples to be, to be your witnesses, that witness of your power, that are strengthened by your spirit, and that go and deliver the gospel of your kingdom to all those that are around us. I pray, Father, that you will not only plant these things in our hearts, but make them true in our lives. Make them true in our marriages, our families, and our small groups, in our community at large, Lord. And I pray, Father, that your spirit will lead us in these days. We thank you, God, for the time that we've had together. In Jesus' name, let's stand together and sing. <laughs>